Wow, can I get a witness on that? Amen. Thank you, Ron. That's a Jordan Police song, the one who did the river. And only Ron could sing a Jordan Police song. That song, thank you, Ron. Thanks, Brad, for leading us this morning. If the Apostle Paul could sing, and maybe he could have, that would have been one of his theme songs. That's really the book of Ephesians. That's what he's been saying. That's what he said to us. That's the New Testament, the book of John. You are my beloved. Book of 1 John, you are my beloved. It is God's love letter to his children. I need you to know how much I love you. Do you get that? Do you understand it? Paul prayed over and over again in this chapter, in the last chapter, in the book of Colossians. I pray they understand how beloved they really are. And when somebody pointed that song out to me a few weeks ago, I thought, number one, only Ron could sing it. And secondly, it's got to be in this context of the message. This fits exactly as a segue from last Sunday morning's message with all the artwork up here and a reminder that you and I are God's masterpiece, his work of art, clearly designed by him to do good works, to serve him in every way. We've been in the book of Ephesians for the last few weeks. We're going to continue in our journey this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to take them out and turn to chapter 3. I'm going to be there in a moment. A couple of inserts this morning. If you're visiting us today, we're honored to have you. After the service we've had over the last few weeks, somebody comes up after every service, introduces themselves. We're delighted that you're here. And uh, we love to know how we can help you in any way. There's a lot of information out there. A lot of life groups. You saw that video at the beginning, a way to get connected. And uh, that's one of the ways to do that. And all of those tables out there, they're beginning in the next couple of weeks. So make sure you go out there and sign up, kind of get a feel for what it's about, talk to some people around you and some people that are there so that it can help you. If you are raising high school students, I've got to believe that one of the things that you would want after they leave high school, and many of them will go off to college, is to continue to remain faithful in church, right? How many would love to have their students, after they get out of high school, remain faithful in church? You know one of the ways to do that? One of the best ways to do that? Right here. Statistics have found that one of the best ways to get our high schoolers to stay connected to church after they leave, go off to college, especially if they're a local college or whenever they return back from college, is to get them connected now. Not wait. Get them connected now and get them serving now. That insert, that blue insert, is for every single one of you who have senior high students. I'm telling you, you either believe me or you don't. No, I get that. But I'm telling you, one of the best ways to get them to stay connected to a local church is to be involved. So if you have a high school student, encourage them. They may not do it on their own. They're going to take some encouragement from you to do that. And that insert there, the second one in there about some issues coming up in the state of Pennsylvania, incredibly important that you are involved. You are writing to your senator, writing to your congressman. Uh, what I love about these guys, met Senator Hutchinson yesterday and uh, Brian Ellis, I've known for a long time, a representative of Nesbitt. What I love about these guys is when you do write them about issues that you have concerns about, they write you back. They get it. They understand. They know. They want to hear from us. All of these decisions are made, have enormous impact on our future. And they are to be made and certainly can have impact on us and churches and schools and some of those kinds of things. They want to hear from the people. What do you say? What do you think? What are your objections? I've got hundreds of them if you need some. But uh, they want to hear from you, not just from me or not just from pastors. They want to hear from the people as well. So please do that. 
January 2018, which believe it or not is a year and a half away, it just blows my mind, less than a year and a half away, I will have finished 40 years in ministry in the CNMA. That blows me away. I said to the elders the other night, you're clapping because I'm finished, right? You're clapping because I'll be finished. I know that. I said to the elders the other night, 2018, I'll hopefully try not to remind you of this again, but on 2018, I will have finished 40, 40 years of ministry, 45 years of marriage, and 65 years old. 2018's a big year. I'm not sure what I'm doing. I told the boys, my son-in-laws, I don't know what we're doing, but it's going to be big. <laughs> Just keep 2018 clear. Not sure what it's going to look like, but it's going to be big. Those are things we want to celebrate. When I began to look back at my 40 years of ministry, I realized how unbelievably blessed I have been. I started ministry as a youth pastor in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and served there for two and a half years. Loved it. District superintendent called me up and said, there's a church in Beaverdale, Pennsylvania. I had to look it up on a map to find out where on earth it was down near Johnstown, PA, who needs what I believe you have to offer. Would you consider going? I went down and interviewed and candidated. Then I had to take my wife because she wasn't interested in leaving the last church. We interviewed, candidated. They called us as uh, our system goes, and we spent almost six years there. Left Newcastle in tears. After almost six years in Beaverdale, Pennsylvania, the district superintendent called me up and said, there's a church in Cattersport, Pennsylvania, of which, again, I had to look on a map to find out where it was, who has your skills and would like you to consider going there. My wife, again, was content where we were. I went up, interviewed, and candidated. She's like Granny Clampett, I say. We had to put her on the top. <laughs> I know. For some of you, are going, Granny who? <laughs> went. Interviewed, candidated, and spent the next 10 years there and loved it. After about nine and a half years there, the district superintendent called me up and said, there's a church in Butler, Pennsylvania. I knew where that one was because I've been here. Said that they would love you to consider coming and interviewing and going through the process of becoming their pastor. And after 10 years in Cattersport, October this year, I'll spend 21 years here. Now, as you can well imagine, I have refused taking any phone calls from my district superintendent which is why I'm still here and you're still stuck with me. I say all that for these reasons. I love what I do, I love where I'm at, and I love the church. I love my time in Newcastle, I love my time in Beaverdale, I love my 10 years in Cattersport, I've loved all 21 years here. I'm one of the rare pastors who have been blessed by every single church he's been a part of. Not every pastor can say that. They'll have one church that hurt them, one church that threw them out, one church that destroyed them. Only 50% of pastors who start into ministry stay after five years. And only 25% of those who ever started out in ministry end up still in ministry when they retire. It took its toll and takes its toll. I love what I have done, and every church I've left, I leave in tears. In Acts chapter 20, and you don't have to turn there this morning, Paul is leaving the church we're referring to and writing about in the book of Ephesians in tears. He said, I spent three years with you. I have loved you. He calls the elders together of Ephesus, and he shares with them with a real heavy heart. He gives them a charge. He said, I want you to take care of of the church what Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood. Believe it or not, I don't have any visuals up here this morning, but I've got the greatest visual of all and a reminder of what this sermon is all about. Take care of the church what Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood. 
The Apostle Paul had a deep, burning love for the church of Jesus Christ. He prayed for the church. He wept for the church. He wept over the church. He got angry at the church. He rebuked it. He nourished it. He encouraged it. He warned them that some would come and try to destroy the church. He taught them the theology of the church. He taught them the function of the church. We spent the last few weeks looking at Ephesians 1 and 2, exploring the foundation of God's plan and beginning to see where God is saying and Paul is saying, do you realize and recognize your unbelievable potential? I just want you to know you have incredible potential to change the world. Not just yourself, not just your family, not just your community. You have the potential to change the world. Paul wasn't giving them a little pat in the back saying, all right, now do your best, give it your best shot. He was passionately preaching and praying that they would fully understand who they were in Christ, what they have in Christ, and would live up to their full potential. One of the reasons I love this church, one of the reasons I listened to every DS who called me, that's one of the reasons I couldn't wait to get here, to be honest with you, because I've known about this church, one of the reasons I've been absolutely thrilled out of my mind to stay at this church for the last 21 years, because we have such unbelievable potential to make a difference where you are and around this community. We are blessed with the truth the life-redeeming, life-giving truth of Jesus Christ, and we have the opportunity to take that everywhere we go and to make sure we communicate what we have found in Christ, which differs sometimes from what others think they have found or think they made known or did not know at all. Sometimes we take, in a church setting like ours, sometimes we take the truth that we hear and the truth that we've been receiving for granted. This week I had a letter that came to me in an email. I've gotten permission from the individual to say it, otherwise I will, of course, say their name. In a world that promotes gray, I'm thankful that we're in a church that speaks black and white like we did this last two Sundays. I appreciate the truth so boldly spoken. As I write this, I'm sitting by the bedside of my father who's dying. The rituals and tradition of his religion fail to comfort him. He's convinced that he cannot know his final destination. He's uncertain that the Bible is truth. My heart breaks. How could he have sat in a church for all of those years and not know that it's faith, not works? He has absolutely no peace. Religiously attended church but never opened the Bible right there in front of him but never saw it. I am so angry that he sat in church all those years with some from the pulpit who promoted religion over relationship for never preaching the whole truth, for failing to be good shepherds, for not letting him know there is truth. There is a way and there is life in Christ. And not telling the truth. Perhaps the most single important question is this. Shared by Jesus, who do you say that I am? As a child, she said, I saw my grandfather figure, I saw Jesus as a grandfather figure on a flannel board. As a teenager, he was a judgmental killjoy. As a young adult, he became my savior. Over the years, he's become my rock, my sore foundation, the way, the truth, and the life. In my early years, my answer to the question reflected the opinion shared by others. As I grew older, my answer was my own. I'm so grateful for the transition. Now that my father has passed, she wrote in between. My family begins to struggle over the questions that have been answered. Some grieve as if they have no hope. I rely on the strength that God has given me. I know the truth. Some fall back on religious rituals so devoid of joy, no relationship at all. 
My heart is heavy with sorrow for those who hold no hand, no truth. I hold on to the Lord my Savior. I am praying fervently for those who sit in pews Sunday after Sunday who never honestly really know the truth. Never, ever, ever take the truth that you hear for granted. There are hundreds sitting in churches this very hour who are not hearing the truth, don't know the truth, and are ready to die and have no idea where they're going. They have no idea what to hold on to. You and I in this church have been entrusted with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystery revealed to the church, to us. Don't ever, ever take it for granted and share it everywhere you go because there are friends of yours sitting in churches this morning who don't know what you know and are going to die and go to hell without that knowledge. That's why Paul was so passionately concerned about the church. Not that it become pew sitters sitting in taking religion Sunday after Sunday who have no idea what it is they believe or why even they believe what they believe, who have nothing to hold on to and leave this world empty. I'm going to begin reading this morning out of Ephesians chapter 2. I always tell you, and we're going to have it on the screen, and we do that, and, 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 but I'd love for you to buy, bring your Bibles. You've got one in front of you. You can borrow it. You can take home if you don't have one. But I love to jot dirt, certain pieces down. I love to wash it as I'm reading, and I love to underline some words. So that's why we always say, bring it if you have one. We will provide this, but we really would love for you to have it. Paul is trying to remind them again of where they have come from, their incredible potential, they are masterpieces designed by God to do good works. Therefore, in light of all that I just said, remember that you were formerly Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who believe in the circumcision, the Jews, obviously. Remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners of the covenant of the promise, without hope, without God in this world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. He's made those two groups one. Destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, Jew and Gentile, those who were separate, now one, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile them both through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews who didn't really know who he was. For through him we both have access, both, all of us have access to the Father by one spirit. I want to come back to that verse to highlight it. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises above to become a holy temple in God. And in him... You are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason, chapter 3, for this reason, everything he just said, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is a mystery that has been made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it's now been revealed by the Spirit of God, God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery 
is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. I am a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. I am less than the least of the Lord's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of grace. By the way, you're all Gentiles. Given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of God's grace, of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, that's you, that's us, everyone who claims Christ, not the physical body, not the building, everyone who claims Christ as their Savior, through us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we can approach God. We can come to the throne of God with confidence and freedom. I ask you, therefore, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are for your glory. One of the settings of the New Testament that maybe you've heard about before, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it's one of the most well-known stories of Jesus cleansing the temple. If you know anything about the Jewish temple, there were certain sections that only certain people could get to. The Jews had access, and there were different dividing walls in between the certain segments of the holy temple until finally there was the, 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 the holiest of holies where the high priest could only go once a year. They tied a rope to his leg that if for some reason he died when he went in, they could drag him out because they themselves weren't allowed to go in outside of that one particular time. There were other barriers outside where only a few could come, and there were other barriers called the walls or the court of the Gentiles where those who were not Jews could only go to had no access to God. Even the high priests were selling wares there, selling sacrifices. Some were bringing their sacrifice, hoping that God would accept, and they were bringing their sacrifices to God <coughs> of a dove or a pigeon or a sheep or a goat, hoping he would accept. They would say, no, they're not acceptable. You have to buy ours. You have to come our way. Jesus saw that setting, was irate with it, threw over every single table, threw all the money changers out, and said statements like this, one of the classic statements, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Many have stopped that, my house shall be a house of prayer, and said, well, that's what the house of God was designed to do. That's what we should do, and we should be praying. But the essence of that statement does not stop there. Mark is the only one that quotes from Isaiah correctly and fully when he said, my house is a house of prayer for all people. Don't you dare shut the kingdom of heaven in their faces by not allowing them in. And that was the miraculous nature of Jesus when he came to die for all people. Black, white, rich, poor, Gentile, Greek, slave-free, male, female. And Paul over and over again begins to talk about how incredibly important that is and how much he wants them to understand because what he's now seeing lived out is what Jesus was so frustrated with when he threw the money changers out of the church that they were saying only we have access to God as Jews, the special chosen people of God. When Jesus said that is not true, my house should be available to everyone. And when he broke that veil or tore that veil when he died on the cross and <coughs> at dark hour when he was there on the cross and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, it was a symbol of saying, 
Now God is available to all. That's what he's saying here in this section, that all of us, Jew and Gentile, have access to God. We can come boldly to God himself. It doesn't have to be through me. You don't have to buy your way in. You don't have to go to the priest to get access to God. You and I have access to the God of the universe. That's a fascinating truth that some aren't hearing and need to hear. The very first thing you notice in this section of Scripture that, that, that Paul is willing to pay a price for what he believes. He calls himself the prisoner of Christ. Now I'm in chapter 3. Prisoner of Christ. The RSV translates it a prisoner for Christ. I believe, to be honest with you, it's literal in this case. This guy is not just preaching lofty little sermons. He's willing to pay a price for the truth that he now knows is true. Because to be honest with you, Paul was one of those Jews that thought he was the only one that had access. And now all of a sudden he realized he calls himself a pastor or preacher or missionary to the Gentiles saying, oh my lands, this is available to all. And he begins to continue to preach that, paying an ultimate price. He's willing to pay a price for what he knows to be believes because he knows what he believes is true. You also notice he's not whining about it. I hear people all the time say, well, it's so hard for me to stand up for my faith. Really? That's so hard for me to stand up for my faith. Really? I'll put you on a boat or a plane this afternoon and take you to 12 countries that I know that they'll pay the ultimate price by death for sharing their faith and are still willing to do it. Seriously doubt if any of you will be killed for sharing your faith. I don't mean to take that lightly. I'm just saying... For those who say, well, I don't want to talk about Jesus because somebody may not like me. You've got the answer to life itself. I could take you to a dozen countries who are willing to pay the price with their life because they know this is the greatest message on earth. What we have to offer is worth the price that we could have to pay. The other thing you notice in this chapter is the dash or the stop. It almost seems as if he begins to pray, does that, that phrase two or three times in the book of Ephesians. For this reason, he's going back in his head. He's, he's, they're reading the whole letter. I've broken it up into, what, four weeks already, and I'll probably break it up in the next six weeks. And I some of you are saying, just get it done. No, it's, it's just too much to do that. But they're reading it in one setting, and so they're seeing that, and they're saying, okay, now for this reason, in light of what I just said, I need you to understand and then it's almost as if he stops. He wants just to take this beyond a minute. I'm not going to pray yet. And then he does in a little bit in the end of chapter 3. Do you realize, do you really understand what I'm, what I'm telling you? Do you understand this mystery? And he begins to go through and expound on it. You need to understand this is a new kind of entity. This is something very unique, the body of Christ. Never has anything like that been ever referred to before. You've heard the people of God, the family of God, the kingdom of God, but now he's saying it is a body, a brand new concept. The church is Christ's body to the world. 2,000 years ago is what he's saying here, that God expressed his love to the world through Christ. John 3, 16, you see it at every football game you go to, right? Somebody in the end zone holds up the placard. One of the most looked up verses in all of Google's history. Because a lot of people, it's one of the reasons they do it, the people, what is John 3, 16? And so people look it up, and there's the answer. For God so loved this world, God so loved. You know that phrase, it's not about you? Yes, it is. It is about you. I get it. 
you know, because we all think it's about us, and so we Facebook and tweet and twerk and all the whatever we do. You know, I, I got a thousand followers. It's about, look at me. And I get that, so, and that's uh, why we say it's not about you, but the flip side of that is, yeah, it is about you. God so loved you, he gave his life. God so loved you, he offered his son so that you could have life and have it forever. And he wanted them to understand that. And so he sent his son so that we could understand God's unbelievable love for the world through his son Christ. Now he expresses his love to the world through the church. That's how significant who we are is and what we do is. Paul is so passionately concerned about the church living up to its potential that he constantly reminds them of who they are and what God's done. The enormous results of this mystery that Jew and Gentile could be together. Eventually, he's going to talk about slave and free, man and woman, Greek and barbarian are one. Exactly what Jesus prayed for before he went to the cross. God, more than anything else, I pray that they stay as one, the disciples, and that those who come after them because of this understand how to stay together and solid. And what Jesus prayed for is now becoming reality and what Paul is talking about. He says it in chapter 2 and he says it in chapter 3. He wants them to understand this truth is so unbelievably profound. He wants to make sure they understand it. This is not just being in a club together. What God designed to happen between you and I and the body of Christ is a fusion of people from all walks of life and backgrounds who when they receive Christ as their Savior become parts of his body. Different functions different members, but parts of one body to take the gospel of Christ to the world. It's a metaphor that Paul uses throughout the entire New Testament, the body of Christ. That's the mystery revealed. That it's no longer just Christ revealing himself through the prophets in the word. It is the Christ revealing himself through the body of Jesus Christ to the world around him. Which is why over and over again he'll talk about unity and making sure that we understand how to put all the barriers aside. And those of us who know Christ is our savior are part of the same body. We can't talk about reaching a lost and dying world. We can do that until we're blue in the face. But if the body in Christ has discord and strife. We're disconnected, dysfunctional, and separated. And the one place that the world's supposed to see Christ, they don't. Our theology could be of correct, but of little value. Because if the relationships aren't what they need to be, they won't see it. <coughs> Takes a lot of work. Individual churches aren't always the same. When we talk about the church, what we're talking about is not a building, not a denomination. We're talking about those who have accepted Christ as their Savior are part of the family of God. They're part of the body of Christ. Not a part of the body of Christ just because you go to church. You're part of the body of Christ because you accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you understand that. It's hard sometimes to be connected to other churches because we'll look at sections of Scripture like this and try to put them all together. It's hard to connect with some. It's impossible with others. Some act like they're the only ones who are right. I read a pastor's website this week who talks about what's wrong with the church in America. And I looked at that and I said, you cannot make that statement because you have not been to all the churches in America. Fascinating thing is he has the answers as I begin to write it and read it. Problems will arise. It's going to happen. But in the church, specifically a local body as well as a universal body, if possible, 
more than any place else, we should find people learning, leaning toward love, who really understand forgiveness and grace and want to dispense it with everything they have, who want everybody from all walks of life, regardless of their background or circumstances or situation, to come and be a part of this body. Therefore, Paul would say, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The church's impact on the world depends on us doing that with everything we have, to protect it and preserve it. Will we disagree? Absolutely. But we have to work hard at doing everything we can to maintain the unity that Christ died for. It's his church. In Matthew 16, he said, look, I'll build my church. He is the builder. It's not about a denomination. It's not built on great preaching or programs or committees. <laughs> I love Swindoll's definition of a committee. He said a committee is, uh, a giraffe is a horse made by a committee. You have to be there to get it done right. <laughs> the church is built by Christ. It's built on Christ. It's built for Christ. And therefore, because of that, it is sacred and needs to be preserved. His intent now, verse 10 of chapter 3, through the church, that's us, the body of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. It began in an upper room in Jerusalem as wind of God began to blow and people from all walks of life, from every background you can imagine, from all nations under the sun, gathered in Jerusalem, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their lives were changed at that moment. And they went everywhere sharing and telling about Jesus. And the church was born, visible and invisible. Everywhere they went, they told people not about their buildings or their programs or their pastor. Everywhere they went, they told everyone that Christ was alive. He really does make a difference. When I accept him as Savior, I know exactly where I'm going when I die. He is my hope in my life and my future. Our witness to the world is not just what we say. It's what we live out, how we love, how we share, how we act toward those who are different. Economically, Ethnically, I have some really good friends who are African-American and said, you have no idea how hard it is to be black in the city of Butler. When Jesus Christ says, my kingdom is available to all, it is available to all who are different than us, think different than us, look different than us, but it's available to all. And what we as a church of Jesus Christ need to make sure that we constantly remember is that we have the greatest message on the planet and not every one of them that are declaring that. And we want to live up to our full potential in doing everything we possibly can to let the love of Jesus Christ shine out of us everywhere we go. That's why I said to you last Sunday morning in the midst of a debate over cultural issues and sensitive issues that, to be honest with you, drive me a little bit crazy. What they need to see from us, what they need to hear from us is the love of Jesus Christ. Because that changes a heart. You will not change a mind by your great discussions. But Jesus Christ can change a heart. And when the heart's changed, then the mind will change. Paul says, join me in this effort to really understand fully who you are and begin to dispense that grace everywhere you go. For that reason, we'll pick up next Sunday morning. I pray you do that. At the end of Jesus' physical ministry on this earth, he said to his disciples, I want to tell you something. I'm really looking forward to spending a meal with you. 
To them, it was the Passover. That's what they thought it was. They had done Passovers before. They had a Jewish history of Passovers. But he said, I'm really looking forward to sharing this meal with you. It wasn't because it was the Passover. It was because of what he was going to do that night with the elements that we hold in our hand. We gather together around this table once a month. He got them together in an upper room. And as the meal continued to go on, he took some bread and passed it around. He said, I want you to stop for a minute and recognize that what I'm about to do will change your life. I'm going to offer myself. They were used to a history where sacrifices have been offered all their lives to have their sins forgiven. He said, I'm going to offer myself. It's my body that's going to be given for you. And then after the meal, he took a cup and he passed it around and every one of them took something from it. And he said, this cup is going to stand as a new symbol. Always has to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But instead of the blood of bulls and rams and doves and goats, it's going to be mine. And I will shed my blood so that you can have forgiveness of your sin. And all you need to do is receive it. You and I have the truth. It's declared here. It's been declared at pulpits like this one for hundreds and hundreds of years. This particular church for over 110 years. And it has the ability to change a life forever. What you hold in your hands this morning as we celebrate communion is a reminder of Christ's unbelievable love for you and a love that he wants you to pass on to the world around you. If you have found forgiveness in Christ, you've received Christ as your Savior, you've accepted him as your Savior and Lord, then you are a part of the family of God. You don't have to be a member of this church or any church to participate in communion. You do, he said, need to be a member of the family of God by receiving him as Savior. You can do that while the elements are being passed. You can accept Christ as Savior today and now. Because he said, you don't want to take this lightly. You want to ever take this for granted. But it is free for those who receive. Father, we thank you for your grace. I thank you so much for the truth that you have given us, the truth that you have been able to allow us to share for such a long period of time. As we hold these elements in our hands this morning, I trust that you will continue to remind us of your unbelievable grace for us, the potential that you see in us, and the opportunity we have to pass on what we have received to the world around us who is desperately looking for life and answers and hope. We have found it in you. We rejoice in that this morning. We rejoice in that this morning. Communion stores are going to come this morning. They're going to pass these elements out. Some quiet music will be played behind you. Everything is in one tray. So all that's passed is once. But help the person beside you. Take the bread and take the cup. And everybody is taking. Then wait till kind of everybody is served. And then I'm going to come back up for a second and walk you through it as we take together. Spend some time with Christ. Remembering what he's done. Remembering his love. Remembering that you are the beloved of God. Gentlemen, and we determine more than anything else to live the truth out so that others can find what we have found in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Trust you have a great day. Enjoy the gift of life that God has given you. Anything we can do for you, please let us know. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday.